Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. First of all, I want to point out the obvious. The audio for this podcast will not be quite up to the par of the previous podcast that you're used to listening to, and that's because I'm using my home studio instead of my office studio and my microphone the one that I'm currently using is, is of a lesser quality than the microphone I ordinarily use. And that's because in Ontario here, uh, we have a lockdown. We have a stay-at-home order. So I couldn't make it into the office to record this podcast. I'm hoping to just ignore the restrictions and make it in for the next podcast because I think this uh, whole thing is getting a little bit ridiculous. But anyways, that's a side note. The woman I'm speaking to today, Aislinn Goodison, is also in lockdown because she lives in the United Kingdom. I've known Aisling for, for quite a few years because back in 2013, uh, she joined the team at the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform uh, to get some pro-life training, to cut her teeth on pro-life activism. And then she went back and became a director at the Centre for Bioethical Reform United Kingdom, a phenomenal group that does amazing things in the United Kingdom. They constantly hold politicians to account. They have projects running that are political, that are educational, that are pastoral. And one of the things I like to do on this show, as as many of you will know, is to showcase the pro-life and pro-family movement around the world, because with all the depressing things in the news, it's good to know that there are good people doing good things uh, that we can celebrate and can encourage us that wherever darkness rears its head, other people are there pushing back. She's got an incredible story. In fact, she sued several abortionists for perpetrating or being willing to perpetrate sex-selective abortions. And so I really do think you'll enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, maybe just to start off, tell our listeners and viewers just a little bit about yourself, because I know that people always wonder... What sort of person ends up in the pro-life movement full-time anyway? Oh, gosh. Okay. A bit about myself. I am from a Christian family, so I'm the second eldest of eight children, so a nice big family. Um, Grew up in Brighton in England. Um, I've spent my whole life here. Um, Yeah, so I guess I would say I'm... Yeah, I, I was first made aware of the issue of abortion when I was 15, but I hadn't really heard much about it before. Mm. Um, so it, it really was, yeah, we had the odd RE lesson, but we didn't really have any detailed discussions about this topic. So, yeah, I don't really know what else you want to <laughs> know. I'm married. I recently got married a couple of years ago, and uh, we've got our little newborn son. So mm. he's six weeks old. Um, so, yeah, that's just a little bit about where I'm at at the moment so just for the listeners in in canada and the u.s who are unaware what is the situation regarding abortion in the united kingdom yeah so abortion is legal um up to 24 weeks for basically any and every reason and legal up to full term for any minor disability and also if the mother's life's in danger um how it's written in the law is if you have an abortion outside one of abortion is technically illegal outside one of four circumstances. So under 24 weeks, mother's life's in danger, um, a child has a disability um, and a risk to her her mental and physical health. So so that is 
that's the situation in the UK. Um, so yeah, so if you have an abortion outside those grounds, um, you are um, you would be accountable to the 1861 Offences Against the Persons Act, which means that um, any abortion outside those grounds would be a an offence against a person, the unborn child. And therefore, you could get a penalty of penal servitude for life, so life imprisonment. So it's it's very um, strong, actually, the laws here. And so mm. when people have abortions, if they're done outside those clauses, the, the penalty is high. Um, but no one has um, been prosecuted, really, apart from the case that I took, which we'll talk about more in a minute, um, for having an abortion in the UK. So, of course there's lots of flouting of the law there's lots of um, abortions happening for oh I want to go on holiday or I want to um, get on with my career or I just feel too young so they're kind of yeah there's there is a lot of um, yeah flouting of the law in that sense. When you say minor disability does that mean discovering your child has Down syndrome would be the justification for an abortion after 24 weeks? Yeah, absolutely. Over 90% of those with Down syndrome in the UK are aborted. Um, even like cleft palate, cleft lip, uh, club foot, um, any any minor disability. Um, I think 15 babies last year were aborted up to full time for cleft palate, so having the wrong smile. Um, wow. So it's, it, is, it is crazy. It's crazy here. Now, in the last year, before we get into some of the the details of of your story in regards to to prosecution and things like that, there was a couple of stories that came out last year during the the pandemic discussing the rise of of, of, um, do-it-yourself or do-it-at-home abortions, which, of course, are, are increasingly prevalent not only in the UK, but in the US and in Canada as well. And there was a couple of reports indicating First of all, a sharp uptick in women hemorrhaging at home because, of course, they were taking an extremely dangerous bunch of drugs without medical supervision. And secondarily, and this has also, by the way, happened several times in North America, women were taking pills to attempt to abort babies that were far older uh, than was possible for that version of abortion. And in one instance, I know the police had opened a murder investigation because of the age of the child that was killed. Do you um, have any idea what happened with those cases? What's the situation regarding RU486, the murder investigation in the UK? So I can't speak into those cases specifically. I know that there have been, which is, there have been police investigations into cases. There was a um, a senior midwife who, there was an, uh, an email that was leaked in which in this email she was, um, detailing, I think you can find it on the Christian Concern website. So Christian Concern, uh, you can go on there and see the full details of of the email and and the investigations that were done. But uh, this this leaked email said that um, there was a murder investigation that a baby had been born at um, twenty eight weeks um, from the pills by post, um, and also that there were two cases where two women had died. From from having these pills by post, so one from sepsis um, and another one arrived at hospital and 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 died there. So one was found at home, one was found in hospital. I don't know exactly what happened in those cases. Um, I don't know if there are those reports are available um, for us to to look at right now. But I do know that there 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 was a bit of talk that 
I think even the Department of Health looked into that case and said that those two deaths um, weren't as a result of pills by post, that they happened from women taking the pills, but not necessarily from them being posted at her home. Um, and they could have right. just before the lockdown period as well, just before um, the DIY home abortions came in. So there is a little bit of questioning around that information anyway. I mean, is that relevant to share or not? It might not be like those women definitely died from taking the abortion pills, but not in the pills by post season, which yeah, was, yeah. was introduced in our, in our, well, that makes sense. And yeah. so it, it, it's a really interesting time to be, to be a pro-life activist because suddenly there's all these new challenges coming. There's all these, you know, different abortion procedures, the landscape of the abortion debate in some ways is shifting to a degree so to back up a little bit, um, how did you end up in the pro-life movement full time? You said you, you know, really became exposed to the issue at the age of 15. Uh, you grew up in, in a pro-life family, but hadn't thought a lot about the issue. So what got you from there to working full time for the Center for Bioethical Reform UK? Right. So I was... Um... We, I'm sure your most of your many of your listeners would have heard of Stephanie Gray. So my mum <laughs> had heard of this amazing Canadian speaker who was going to come to the UK and give some pro-life talks, um, and she was going to go to a church down the road from our house, this little church. And so my mum was like, "Oh, this speaker's coming. Let's fly the area." So she got loads of leaflets and and fly it around and went to churches and stuff to let people know about this talk. But as is quite common in talks like this in the UK very, very few people show up. And I'm not sure if that's the case in the, in the US and Canada, but I think probably about 15, 20 people showed up and there were thousands of these flyers that went out. Um, so my mom said, why don't you come along and listen to this talk? And I was a little bit like, oh, is that really what I want to do? And wasn't really interested in the issue, but went along and Stephanie showed this video and it was a video of um, a, an abortion procedure in the first trimester and in um second and third trimester. So it was only about a minute long, but just showing each of those um, realities. And when she shared that video, it it was, it's like seeing Holocaust imagery. It's absolutely horrific. And it just gripped my heart. And it, it just, the thought came to mind, um, you know, now that I've seen this, I'm, I can no longer do nothing. I have to do something, but what? should I do? Mm. And, um, so there was a guy called Andy and, uh, a, a couple of people from a church, Jubilee church, um, in Worthing. And he said, well, I'm just going to go out. I, my mind was changed by seeing this reality. And I'm sure if other people saw this reality, their minds would be changed too. Um, so I'm going to go out and just show these images, um, outside the local abortion clinic in Brighton, where roughly three to 4,000 babies are killed every year does anyone want to stand with me otherwise he was just going to put it in the bollard and stand there by himself um so my parents were like yes we'll join you and I was like well I'll join you but it was directly across the road from my college and from <laughs> my secondary school as well so it's quite interesting that these abortion clinics are strategic strategically placed next to lots of young people and students so there's 2,000 students in that college and and another 2,000 in the secondary school as well so um, all my teachers and my peers, you know, they'd be walking past me and I'd be standing there with showing this reality. And we saw, we saw, we saw loads of minds change. We saw people, um, keep their babies as a result of seeing these 
these images. And actually, we didn't have to do too much talking. The images really spoke for themselves. So that was my the beginning of my journey, but also received a lot of abuse as well. And um, and then from there, I took part in the Genocide Awareness Project um, in Florida, which CBR US. Um, actually, no, I think it was Canada. It was you. It was you guys, which you were running in Florida. And so right. I went over when I was 18, took part in that, and then was very, um, was very privileged, but was compelled as well to take part in the, the internship with CCBR um, in Canada. So took part in that three and a half month internship when I was, I think, 20. So I'm 27 that was, now. Was that 2014? 2013. 2013. 2013. Yeah, 2013. Wow, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Wow. I, I, re- I remember that, that program. It was the year, it was the year the Calgary flood hit, I think. So I was trying to remember which. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was like trees was. floating down the river and getting caught on the bridges and yep. stuff like that. So I was trying to remember which, uh, <laughs> which, which, which year <laughs> that, that was. That was it. It was crazy. It was crazy. I just remember being in Bowness, like in an apartment in the basement and coming on the TV was, if you live in Bowness and a number of different regions, leave now, evacuate, time to leave your houses. And I was like, where do I live? Oh my goodness, where do we live? Oh, never mind. <laughs> it was crazy. And there was helicopters outside and my friends were like out in the car somewhere. I was stranded. It was all very crazy time. <laughs> yeah, there was tanks blocking up off the overpasses to, to High River. Yes, yes, there was. I think a bridge even, like a, a bridge went and my friends were going to come back across that bridge and they're like, we can't pick you up. So it was a, yeah, it was an intense time coming to coming to Calgary. <laughs> yeah, most of the bridges aren't nearly well. that exciting. It's the first time a flood like that had hit, I think, uh, hit Calgary in like 25 years, but it was definitely it interesting was to be part of. It was crazy, 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 but makes for good stories. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of uh, doing street level activism in the United Kingdom, wh- what's it like? So, like, you know, you know what you know what it's like to do it in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Because you came with us to Florida, um, you've been on the streets in Canada for a couple of months. Floods accepted. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the response you get? You said you've changed uh, like a lot of minds, which is what happens whenever anybody sees sort of the really stunning truth of what actually takes place during an abortion. But do you find that you get a lot of violence and and, and hostile reactions? Because we de- in Canada's bigger cities, we definitely get a lot of that. What's it like in the UK? I would say, um, yeah, we definitely have that. Absolutely. We do, we do get anger, which is often where there's heat, there's hurt. <laughs> so so it's, it's more about when we when we're training those who volunteer with us. It's letting them really understand that you know how to deal with these conflict um, situations. But yes, we do. We have been um, spat at. Our boards have been. They have been knifed as well. You know, there there has been. Um, yeah, there has been violence. I mean, thank God, I don't think any there's been any major violence done against any members of our team. Um, but certainly to our banners and our yeah our equipment. And things have been stolen and stuff like that. But I would say, like from my experience in in Canada as well, that the, the reactions are quite similar mm. to to Canada in terms of you get lots of people who are in the what we call the the mushy middle, so right. they haven't really got a particular view on abortion. But when they see it, they might have. Um, I think I'm pretty sure that everyone has everyone knows someone that's had an abortion. Yeah, and so often. Our, ex, our perception of abortion is clouded by experiences or other people's stories. Um, so there is going to be a reaction when people see the reality. 
And uh, we just help them to direct their anger or their hurt to what the images are showing instead of who's showing the reality. Um, but yeah, but we we do, we have, um, we've got an amazing little um, uh, video, which you can see on our website, cbruk.org, which shows people, you know, saying what they think about abortion, then we show them a little video of it and, and you watch them change their mind as they're seeing that. And that's reached um, over a million people, just that little video showing people changing their minds. So it, as the, I mean, the abortion industry survives on euphemisms and it survives on covering up the truth mm-hmm. and lies and the language is all clump of cells, products of conception, clinical waste. And, you know, so when we show the reality, it's just taking off that, um, all, all those lies just breaks through them and then people have to be forced to reconcile or, or make a decision on whether they agree with that reality when it's right there in their in their faces um but yeah so i'd say the the reaction is on the whole much more um it's positive when we go out the streets that's why we keep going out <laughs> because we see the changes in minds um or just a, a shift in people's perspective towards the pro-life position so um, it's, I would definitely say it's by far the most effective form of activism that I have personally w- witnessed. Um, I mean, we had people out with us, uh, a, a now colleague of mine, James Porter, who is now running the Students for Abolition project of CBR UK. And he was out on a display with us and I think it was his first or second one. And uh, he was having a, he thought, well, this is the first time I'm using these images of abortion. I'm going to try just having a conversation first with some people, you know, away from the images and see how, how that conversation goes. So he started a conversation with a group of teenagers. They hadn't seen the images and he found it very difficult to have that conversation. Then as soon as he showed them the images, all of them just stopped in their tracks, changed their minds. And the conversation was much easier. Then he stood in front of the images and had conversations with people about abortion and saw that it was so much easier when you've got the evidence before you to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I'd say that with this particular strategy, it's very easy to have those hard conversations um, and to see people change their change their minds or shift perspective. Well, and it's interesting because a lot of people assume that if you get backlash, it means that the project's ineffective. And obviously, there's a couple of, of responses to that. But what I often point out is that in today's culture, you can't do anything pro-life without getting a hostile backlash. Yeah. So when you choose a project, you better make sure that results in minds changed, right? Like here in Canada, <laughs> just to give you an example, um, uh, one of my friends was punched in the face for sidewalk chalking, I love babies, uh, you know, on a sidewalk in Toronto. There was a woman in Ontario attacked by a guy with a knife at life chain for, you know, her sign was like, adoption, the loving option, right? So at the end of the day, when you express the pro-life view in public, you're going to get a backlash. The question really is not about the backlash. It's about, okay, a certain percentage of people are going to react badly, but what's the, what is the vast majority of people seeing when they see these pictures? Are they changing minds? And I know that you and I have had very similar experiences. I think Canada and and the UK are are similar in that we both legalized abortion around the same time, right? I believe it was 1967, the Abortion Act for you guys, right? 1969 for us. We both were Anglo countries, although for Canada, it's it's different now than it was when abortion was, was first legalized. 
And we both, I think it's fair to say that the pro-life movement is relatively small, but punches above its weight. Mm. If you had to describe the, the pro-life movement, because I, I find uh, this is one of the most interesting parts of my job is that I, I get to um, communicate with and visit so many different pro-life activists from different countries, and they all have their own unique cultural challenges. Um, different arguments work in different countries. Uh, different people have different objections to the pro-life worldview. Um, and there's some countries where the, the pro-life movement is enormous and, and has packed a lot of clout, like in, in the Republic of Ireland, for example, and even Northern Ireland. Uh, in Malta, they're small but incredibly influential. Uh, the organization Pro-Life Europe is doing a lot of great work in a bunch of different countries now on campuses, um, which is something that hadn't happened in a lot of those countries before that. I know the Dutch movement quite well. If you had to describe uh, the British uh, pro-life movement to somebody who knows abortion's legal but doesn't know much about the movement at large, how would you how would you describe it to somebody? I would describe it as a Gideon's army <laughs> <laughs> at the moment. So if you don't know what that reference is, you go look it up in the Bible. But um Gideon, basically his army was reduced down to 300 men to take on a multitude. And it was reduced down by God because he wanted to show his, that what seems like an absolutely impossible battle, he's going to make it winnable, but with a really small amount of people to prove that he is the one that's in control and that he will get the glory and the victory in it. Mm. Um, And I would say that we very much are small but there is a lot more um, within, we used to be quite ununified as a movement. We we were strong in our individual positions, you know, those who are the crisis pregnancy centers or those who were um, uh, political, but very separate. And I'd say now much more things are really changing, that there's a lot more unity, that there's a lot more collaboration between the um, the different pro-life organizations and we're working together much more as a team on the same side and I see actually as well that you know we see the we've got to look at this as well as not just a a an issue for individual countries but a global issue like slavery was the abolition of the slave trade it was a global abolition and I think that the abortion lobby has understood that so they do take people from different countries all the time um so we get people from America who are running um, the the media operations for our main um, abortion abortion uh, uh, businesses. Um, and so they've learned how to really work as a an international movement. But we, I think we're starting to understand that a bit more and we need to be doing that more and sending out missionaries, I think, as well from different countries, like pro-life missionaries from the US or from Canada. And we need we need to be gleaning from each other and working much more as well on this global scale, not just mm-hmm. on a national level. So I'm I'm seeing glimpses of that happening at the moment, which I'm really encouraged by. But yes, I'd say we're a Gideon's army. We are small, but we are packing punches at the moment as well. And especially when you have the right strategies like um, like I believe very, very, very much in the strategy that CBR globally is operating and uh, following the history of social reform and looking at how uh, past injustices ended and how can we end this one today. So I think if we are clever and follow the right strategy, you don't need many people to to win this battle. You just need to reach that tipping point um, through using the right strategies and then we'll see this 
this um, overturned. And I think much sooner than we think as well. I think that the, um, I also think that the the pro-abortion lobby is overplaying their hand in a sense as well. They're pushing things too far. Like with, for example, with the DIY home abortions, they are, um, everything's being exposed. Like, like what you said earlier about women are a bit hemorrhaging and women are, ex, you know, experiencing the terrible consequences of these DIY home abortions. They're alone. They're many of them are being coerced. Um, it's, I think they're pushing it to the extreme and people are going to start rejecting this when they, when they experience how brutal and, and barbaric this, the pro abortion lobby and the abortion, um, industry is. So yeah, that's my take on it. If uh, I don't know if there's good data on this in the UK, but do you know what roughly what percentage of the population would would share your position on abortion? Oh, I don't think there is great. No, I, I, I actually haven't heard any figures on that. I would say that largely the majority of people, if, if we think about one in three women have at least one abortion in the UK, and one in four babies are aborted. And we had last year, we did have, with the DIY home abortions, we had higher statistics than we've ever had. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of people who are having abortions. Um, so therefore that's kind of reflective of, if they think it's ex- not whether necessarily they're pro-abortion, but they think it's acceptable and a justified, um, or a lesser evil or a justified mm-hmm. wrong. So, so there definitely is work to do here. And I think with the church as well, there is, we are seeing much more, we are seeing that there is an awakening happening, um, but it's it's time for people to turn that awakening into voices and feet and action as well. So when you uh, joined the pro-life movement, you started off by, by doing activism. Uh, you came to Canada, you did a program here, you went yeah. back, you joined CBR UK, which for those listeners who might not have picked it up yet, um, has educational outreach projects showing the reality of abortion on the streets and engaging people in conversation. What role did you take in that organization? And what did your day-to-day job look like? So initially, um, so we were a very small team, but I am the I'm at the head of training and development. Mm. So I'm basically responsible for everything I learned in Canada. So to do with uh, media training, fundraising, presentation training, uh, apologetics, uh, social reform history, all this kind of stuff. I have um, gleaned from the US, from Canada, from the globe and uh, packaged it into um into training up advocates for the unborn here in the UK. So that's what my job has been. And I've created some online training series, which you can visit through our website if you want to have a look at that. And mm-hmm. um, so it's been very much about training up advocates. Um, so obviously, yeah, so I do lots of presentations, that kind of stuff. Um, so that's my job. And But when I came back initially from Canada, there wasn't really much. We, we literally just stood on the streets. We weren't... Um, we didn't have other forms of outreach. Now we've, we're we're at, at a point where we've grown massively. So we have a number of different projects running at the moment. So we have PACE, which is post-abortion support for everyone. We have Breathos, which is specifically aimed at equipping pastors and church leaders to be able to um, address this issue in their congregate, congregations and then help those who have been hurt by abortion, help those who are considering abortion, um, and then also get their congregation active as well. We also have students for abolition. So which is about 
getting um, students across the country engaging in this issue, getting them active, equipped. And then we have Hope Pregnancy, which is um, a new breed of directive, not non-directive, but directive pregnancy um, counselling. So it is telling women that abortion does end the life of your child. It is providing them with all the facts and all the information about what abortion will do to that child and what it will do to the woman. Um, So it's a new form of, I think the first of its kind in the UK, of directive pregnancy care and help. So we've seen this very, very tiny organization of maybe four or five, a handful of people grow to. We've got uh, more than a hundred of volunteers across the country. Um, We've got a team of 12 staff members who are working in each of their departments to, to um, yeah, to, to abolish abortion, uh, make abortion unthinkable, but through these different outreaches. So I would say that we're definitely, we, we, yeah, we've exponentially increased from what we were a number of years ago. And that's thanks to amazing input from from people in Canada, from people in the US, from, um, yeah, there's been just such a, that that global training as well has been so, um, such a blessing for us here. Um, so it's been great. One of the, uh, the things that I wanted to talk about, because here in Canada, actually, we're currently having a debate about uh, gender selection abortion again. Uh, over 80% of Canadians disapprove of it. A significant portion of Canadians said they would be more likely to vote for somebody who opposed it and was willing to take legislative action. But we have much the same problem you do in the UK in which pro-life politicians are, are a very rare breed. So we have a, a, a private member's bill that's been put forward by Kathy Wagenthal, who's a conservative member of parliament, but the leader of the conservative party, Aaron O'Toole, will be voting against it, as I suspect uh, Boris Johnson and the UK might as well, considering his past scandals in which he was caught purchasing abortions um, for people. So he's been involved with those directly and at least one of his children has been lost uh, to abortion. And I remember, and I forget which year this was now, uh, reading The Guardian, and suddenly there was your face in it. I'm like, I know her. Uh, <laughs> we did pro-life activism together in Calgary, and it was an article about how you were suing an abortion provider who had uh, either done or had been willing to perform a gender selection abortion. So maybe tell us that story, because that sort of David and Goliath story, which was a you know a young a, a young female pro-life activist taking on the abortion industry, was a really fascinating story. And I find it captured the imagination of the press in the UK as well, because it showed up in the BBC, the Guardian, the Independent, the Daily Mail. That story was everywhere for a while. Mm. Yeah, so... So I had just gone back, got back from Canada from doing this internship with you guys. So I was 20 uh, at the time. And this story broke in the UK where the Daily Telegraph did an undercover investigation into nine abortion clinics in the country to see if, if um, sex-selective abortions were happening. Because um, I think there had been a report uh, in 2007, there was two Oxford academics who did this report, which showed that in minority communities in the UK, um, there were less girls being born than boys. And so, yeah, the Daily Telegraph did this investigation. And according to our laws, you, as I've said earlier, you can only have an abortion under one of four very specific circumstances. And the the 24 week, you're allowed an abortion up to 24 weeks for if it severely affects the woman's mental or physical health. Mm. Um, so sex selective abortion doesn't come within that clause of mental or physical health. So 
So technically, if you break, if you have an abortion outside that, sex selective abortion, that's illegal. And you get prosecuted under the 1861 Act, which is, um, like I've already explained, penal servitude for life for, for committing offence against the person in the womb. So, um, so yes, this story broke. The, the Daily Telegraph uh, found that two out of the nine doctors agreed two sex selective abortions. So one doctor said, um, I don't ask questions. You want a termination, you want a termination and uh, signed off for the abortion. And the next doctor said, that's like female infanticide, common in third world countries. I'll write down you're too young instead. So, um, so yeah, these two doctors blatantly flattened the law. One used pre-signed forms as well, which is illegal. Um, and yes, yeah, so there was a lot of evidence there of the law being broken this case hit mainstream news. Um, and after a year-long investigation by the police, um, the Crown Prosecution Service released a statement in which they said that there was enough evidence to convict both these doctors, but it wasn't in the public's best interest to do so. So no case um, was launched against these doctors. Now, at that point, um, Obviously, if you say it's not in the public's best interest, you've just opened the doors in the UK to sex selective abortions. Um, so, and you've, you've given a thumbs up to it. So this case had to be brought forward, but who was going to do it? So um, at the time I was very much, you know, fired up, passionate about this, talked with different members of, of our team. I was volunteering at the time for CBR UK and, uh, discuss amongst them who was going to do it. And I was like, well, why not me? I haven't got anything to lose. This is really important. Let's just go for it. So um, we had a meeting with Christian Concern and Christian Concern were basically the, the fire behind the case. They were 100% supportive, took on the case um, with me, you know, me publicly prosecuting these doctors and they right. supported. 100% and provided the lawyers for that case as well. So, yeah. Do you want me to share a little bit more about how it progressed in the court? Yeah, yeah, let, just let us know how that story went because it's a really it's a really interesting story. Yeah. So, so um so I took the case to firstly the magistrates court with both these doctors and the case went through the magistrates court and went on to the the crown court because they said there was enough evidence. Um and in the crown court um that was where uh, the rubber really hit the road. So the um, doctor's lawyers basically got back in touch with our Crown Prosecution Service and said, could you take over the case and drop it? At which point they said, yes, we will. We will take over the case and drop it. And, but who um, was going to pay for all those legal bills? So that's when the courts issued me the legal bill of, I believe it was about £36,000 at the time. So instead of the doctors, you know, who had actually broken the law being punished for their crimes, it was like I was being punished for daring to take on this case. Um, it was like a slap on the wrist, basically. So we or a much bigger, a big punch, <laughs> punch in the face, more like. Mm -hmm. um, so we we took this case to the high court then to see, you know, just to say, look, even the crown released a statement then saying, yes, still there was enough evidence, but not in the public's best interest um, to prosecute. So the Crown, the High Court looked at the case and they actually issued another, said no, they weren't going to allow it to progress further. So they issued another £11,000 
onto it. In total, it was £50,000. I'm not sure I've done the maths right, but in total, mm. the legal bills that were issued against me was a £50,000 um, bill against me for, for this case. Um, how, how did that get paid off? So, um, so we went back to court uh, because obviously I was a, well, I guess at that point I was about 23 because it had been a long case. It was years that this was going on for. Um, so we ended up back in court and um, basically said that I couldn't pay these bills. So we reached a settlement. So it was minorly reduced. And then people just got behind and they helped to fundraise to pay off the legal bills. Um, so that could have felt very much like, wow, you know, that was a real defeat. But I don't think at all it was a defeat. I think that, again, God, God has used that case to just highlight the place that we are in as a nation and also gave a voice for the unborn and gave us a voice for this issue. And from that came out a BBC documentary, the Victoria Derbyshire programme, which exposed more um, sex selective abortions that gave me an opportunity to speak on multiple platforms and advocate for the unborn child. It did highlight the massive corruption within the establishment. Apparently it is very unheard of that, that if there actually is evidence in the case that you would never issue the prosecutor with the legal bills, um, the Crown would take on those bills because there is a case. But in this case, uh, it's, it really did seem like there was a, you know, it was a a cry out to, to other people out there that you don't dare uh, take yeah. cases like this, basically. Don't don't dare take cases which um, could, could, yeah, affect the abortion industry. So, so yeah, so that is, that's how the case panned out, but, um, yeah, so, but much has been exposed through it. It's like opening a can of worms really to what's really going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, and through that case, um, that, at that time, that was when the, so Anne Furedi, who's the, she was up until last year, the CEO of BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. They do the majority of abortions in the UK. And so they launched this, what well, you probably heard, this whole push, this campaign to decriminalize abortion mm -hmm. in the UK, which basically means to remove abortion from the criminal code, which would make abortion available on demand up to birth for any and every reason. And the reason that they want to decriminalize abortion is they say because women could go to jail for having abortions if they have them outside the 1967 Act. But actually, she said in one of her interviews, it was to protect doctors from people like me who would prosecute them for breaking the law. So this whole move to decriminalize abortion is to protect abortion businesses from prosecutions against doctors who break the law. Um, so it's just, yeah, so we've, we've faced this year, um, last year, attempts in our domestic, you know, bills that are going through parliament, the, the abortion lobby have been hijacking them with clauses to decriminalize abortion. They successfully did it um, in 2019 for Northern Ireland. They hijacked one of our bills and they decriminalized abortion in Northern Ireland. They've been doing the same last year, the domestic abuse bill, which has nothing to do with abortion. It's to do with domestic abuse. They tried to hijack that bill. They failed, thank God, but they're just they're doing multiple attempts to do this um, in order to stop abortion providers from being prosecuted. Um, by people like us who are prosecuting them for breaking the law. So, um, yeah, that's the situation here in the courts in that sense.
So a final question is, what do you see the, the future of the British pro-life movement being like? You know, you're involved. You, you have a growing team, as you just laid out. You've got so many new programs and new initiatives yeah. constantly being invented and put into play. What do you see the future looking like? I see this movement really growing. Um, I, I, I think that I'm very, very hopeful. I'm really hopeful. I believe that we could see this end much sooner than we think. Um and we've also just just from watching what's happening, seeing how quickly it is for people to change their minds, seeing how, whereas beforehand we had to do a lot of recruitment to try and get people to take this issue seriously. Um, you know, when um, you know that was our major focus. Now it's shifted because we're seeing people coming to us, flooding to us, saying, I want to do something, tell me how I can do something. So um, and we're finding ourselves actually quite overwhelmed by the numbers of people that are coming forward wanting to volunteer. So um, our strategy is changing in that sense. We want to make it as easy as possible for people to do something in their areas without having to go through um, a huge amount of um, training and a huge amount of handholding as well. We want to make it as easy as possible for these people to get active. So um, we've launched something called Join the Movement, which is about equipping people where they're at, connecting people with people who are close to them in their region so that they can start doing meaningful pro-life outreach. Um, uh, and activism. So I'm very hopeful that if we keep moving forward, that God will use this little Gideon to defeat this, to defeat this multitude, this army who's, who's pushing for abortion. And I think we're going to see it soon. I'm so hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Where can people find your guys's work? So if you visit cbruk.org, um, that's that's the main website. Then we've also got a Facebook page, CBR UK, with Twitter, YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to. Um, we're on Instagram as well. So so we're we're on all these different social media platforms. But um it's great, it'd be great for people to sign up to our newsletter on the CBR UK website as a lot of our stuff is uh, I'm sure that you're experiencing this as well. Lots of um our videos on YouTube have been censored or vimeo or you know so it's getting more difficult for people to to access our our content so we definitely recommend people signing up to our newsletter so you can see firsthand um the 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 content um that we're producing and what we're up to so thank you for taking the time to share all this with us no it's a pleasure absolute pleasure Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Aislinn Goodison of CBR UK. Thank you so much for joining us this week. You can go over to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab where you can subscribe to get future episodes or go and listen to past shows. We really appreciate you taking time out of your week to listen to the show. We hope you're encouraged by conversations like this, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. Thanks for listening.